Chapter 5, Part 1 of The Sea Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril, and Heroism, Volume 1, by Frederick Wimper. Chapter 5. Perils of the Sailor's Life. Continued. It is impossible to read the account of any great disaster at sea without being strongly impressed with the enormous value of maintaining, in the hour of peril, the same strict discipline which, under ordinary circumstances, is the rule of a vessel. Few more striking examples of this are to be found than in the story of the loss of the Kent, which we are now about to relate. The disaster of the Medusa, which we shall record later, in which complete anarchy and disregard of discipline aggravated a hundredfold the horrors of the situation, only teaches the same lesson from the opposite point of view. Though the most independent people on the earth, all Englishmen worthy of the name, appreciate the value of proper subordination and obedience to those who have rightful authority to command. This was almost the only gratifying feature connected with the loss of the vanguard, and the safe and rapid transference of the crew to the Iron Duke was due to it. But the circumstances of the case were as naught to some that have preceded it, where the difficulties and risks were infinitely greater, and the reward much less certain. The Kent was a fine troop-ship of 1,530 tons, bound from England for Bengal and China. She had on board 344 soldiers, 43 women, and 66 children. The officers, private passengers, and crew brought the total number on board to 640. After leaving the Downs on the 19th of February, 1825, she encountered terrible weather, culminating in a gale on the 1st of March, which obliged them almost to sail under bare poles. The narrative by Sir Duncan MacGregor, one of the passengers, created an immense sensation at its first appearance, and was translated into almost every language of the civilized world. He states that the rolling of the ship which was vastly increased by a dead weight of some hundred tons of shot and shells that formed a part of its lading, became so great, about half-past eleven or twelve o'clock at night, that the main chains were thrown by every lurch considerably under water, and the best cleated articles of furniture in the cabin and the cuddy were dashed about in all directions. It was a little before this period that one of the officers of the ship with the well-meant intention of ascertaining that all was fast below, descended with a lantern. He discovered one of the spirit casks adrift, and sent two or three sailors for some billets of wood to secure it. While they were absent, he unfortunately dropped the lamp, and letting go his hold of the cask in his eagerness to recover it, the former suddenly stove, and the spirits communicating with the light the whole deck at that part was speedily in a blaze. The fire spread rapidly, and all their efforts at extinguishing it were vain, 
although bucket after bucket of water, wet sails, and hammocks were immediately applied. The smoke began to ascend the hatchway, and although every effort was made to keep the passengers in ignorance, the terrible news soon spread that the ship was on fire. As long as the devouring element appeared to be confined to the spot where the fire originated, and which they were assured was surrounded on all sides with water casks, there was some hope it might be subdued. But soon the light blue vapor that at first arose was succeeded by volumes of thick, dingy smoke, which ascended through all the hatchways and rolled over the ship. A thorough panic took possession of most on board. The deck was covered with six hundred men, women, and children, many almost frantic with excitement, wives seeking their husbands, children their mothers, strong men appearing as though their reason was overthrown, weak men maudlin and weeping, many good people on their knees in earnest prayer. Some of the older and more stout-hearted soldiers and sailors sullenly took their seats directly over the powder magazine, expecting momentarily that it would explode and put them out of their misery. A strong, pitchy smell suddenly wafted over the ship. "'The flames have reached the cable-tier!' exclaimed one, and it was found to be too true. The fire had now extended so far that there was but one course to pursue. The lower decks must be swamped. Captain Cobb, the commander of the Kent, was a man of action, and with an ability and decision that seemed only to increase with the imminence of the danger, ordered the lower decks to be scuttled, the coverings of the hatches removed, and the lower ports opened to the free admission of the waves. His instructions were speedily obeyed, the soldiers aiding the crew. The fury of the flames was, of course, checked, but several sick soldiers and children, and one woman, unable to gain the upper deck, were drowned, and others suffocated. As the risk of explosion somewhat diminished, a new horror arose. The ship became waterlogged, and presented indications of settling down. Death in two forms stared them in the face. No sail had been seen for many days, the vessel being somewhat out of the regular course. But although it seemed hopeless, a man was sent up to the foretop to scan the horizon. How many anxious eyes were turned up to him! How many anxious hearts beat at that moment can well be understood. The sailor threw his eyes rapidly over the waste of howling waters, and instantly waved his hat, exclaiming in a voice hoarse with emotion, A sail on the lee bow! Flags of distress were soon hoisted, minute guns fired, and an attempt made to bear down on the welcome stranger, which for some time did not notice them. But at last it seemed probable, by her slackening sail and altering her course, that the Kent had been seen. Hope revived on board. But there were still three painful problems to be solved. The vessel in the distance was but a small brig. Could she take over six hundred persons on board? Could they be transferred during a terrible gale and heavy sea, likely enough to swamp all the boats? Might not the Kent either blow up or speedily founder before even one soul were saved? The vessel proved to be the Cambria, a brig bound to Veracruz, 
with a number of miners on board. For fifteen minutes it had been very doubtful to all on the Kent whether their signals of distress, and the smoke issuing from the hatchways formed no small item among them, were seen, or the minute-guns heard. But at length it became obvious that the brig was making for them, and preparations were made to clear and lower the boats of the East Indiamen. Although, says Sir Duncan MacGregor, it was impossible and would have been improper to repress the rising hopes that were pretty generally diffused amongst us by the unexpected sight of the Cambria, yet I confess that when I reflected on the long period our ship had been already burning, on the tremendous sea that was running, on the extreme smallness of the brig, and the immense number of human beings to be saved, I could only venture to hope that a few might be spared. When the military officers were consulting together, as the brig was approaching, on the requisite preparations for getting out the boats and other necessary courses of action, one of the officers asked Major MacGregor in what order it was intended the officers should move off, to which he replied, of course, in funeral order, which injunction was instantly confirmed by Colonel Fearon, who said, most undoubtedly, the juniors first, but see that any man is cut down who presumes to enter the boats before the means of escape are presented to the women and children. To prevent any rush of troops or sailors to the boats, the officers were stationed near them with drawn swords. But to do the soldiers and seamen justice, it was little needed, the former particularly keeping perfect order and assisting to save the ladies and children and private passengers generally. Some of the women and children were placed in the first boat, which was immediately lowered into a sea so tempestuous that there was great danger that it would be swamped, while the lowering tackle not being properly disengaged at the stern, there was a great prospect for a few moments that its living freight would be upset in the water. A sailor, however, succeeded in cutting the ropes with an axe, and the first boat got off safely. The Cambria had been intentionally lain at some distance from the Kent, lest she should be involved in her explosion, or exposed to the fire from the guns, which being all shotted, went off as the flames reached them. The men had a considerable distance to row, and the success of the first experiment was naturally looked upon as the measure of their future hopes. The movements of this boat were watched with intense anxiety by all on board. The better to balance the boat in the raging sea through which it had to pass, and to enable the seamen to ply their oars, the women and children were stowed promiscuously under the seats, and consequently exposed to the risk of being drowned by the continual dashing of the spray over their heads, which so filled the boat during the passage that before their arrival at the brig, the poor females were sitting up to their waists in water, and their children kept with the greatest difficulty above it. Happily, at the expiration of twenty minutes, the cutter was seen alongside their ark of refuge. The next difficulty was to get the ladies and children on board the Cambria, for the sea was running high, and there was danger of the boat being swamped or stove against the side of the brig. The children were almost thrown on board, while the women had to spring towards the many friendly arms extended from the vessel, when the waves lifted the boat momentarily in the right position. However, 
all were safely transferred to the brig, without serious mishap. It became impossible for the boats, after the first trip, to come alongside the Kent, and a plan was adopted for lowering the women and children from the stern by tying them two and two together. The heaving of the vessel, and the heavy sea raising the boat one instant and dropping it the next, rendered this somewhat perilous. Many of the poor women were plunged several times in the water before they succeeded in landing safely in the boat, and many young children died from the effects. The same violent means, which only reduced the parents to a state of exhaustion or insensibility, having entirely quenched the vital spark in their feeble frames. One fine fellow, a soldier, who had neither wife nor child of his own, but who showed great solicitude for the safety of others, insisted on having three children lashed to him, with whom he plunged into the water to reach the boat more quickly. He swam well, but could not get near the boat, and when he was eventually drawn on board again, two of the children were dead. One man fell down the hatchway into the flames. Another had his back broken, and was observed quite doubled, falling overboard. A third fell between the boat and brig, and his head was literally crushed to pieces. Others were lost in their attempts to ascend the sides of the Cambria, and others again were drowned in their hurry to get on board the boats. One of the sailors, who had, with many others, taken his post over the magazine, at last cried out, almost in ill-humor, "'Well, if she won't blow up, I'll see if I can't get away from her.' He was saved, and must have felt quite disappointed." One of the three boats swamped or stove during the day had on board a number of men who had been robbing the cabins during the confusion on board. It is suspected that one or two of those who went down must have sunk beneath the weight of their spoils. As there was so much doubt as to how soon the vessel would explode or go down, while the process of transference between the vessels occupied three-quarters of an hour each trip, and other delays were caused by timid passengers and ladies who were naturally loath to be separated from their husbands. They determined on a quicker mode of placing them in the boat. A rope was suspended from the end of the spanker boom, along the slippery top of which the passengers had either to walk, crawl, or be carried. The reader need not be told that this great boom or spar stretches out from the mizzenmast, far over the stern, in a vessel the size of the Kent. On ordinary occasions, in quiet weather, it would be fifteen or twenty feet above the water. But with the vessel pitching and tossing during the continuous storm, it was raised often as much as forty feet in the air. It will be seen that, under these circumstances, with the boat at the stern now swept to some distance in the hollow of a wave, and now raised high on its crest, the lowering of oneself by the rope to drop at the right moment was a perilous operation. It was a common thing for strong men to reach the boat in a state of utter exhaustion, having been several times immersed in the waves and half drowned. But there were many strong and willing hands among the soldiers and sailors ready to help the weak and fearful ones, and the transference went on with fair rapidity though with every now and again some sad casualty to record. 
the coolness and determination of the officers, military and marine, the good order and subordination of most of the troops, and the bravery of many in risking their lives for others, seems at this time to have restored some little confidence among the timid and shrinking on board. A little later, and the declining rays and fiery glow on the waves indicated that the sun was setting. One can well understand the feeling of many on board as they witnessed its disappearance and the approach of darkness. Were their lives also to set in outer gloom, the ocean to be that night their grave? Late at night, Major McGregor went down to his cabin in search of a blanket to shelter him from the increasing cold. The scene of desolation that there presented itself was melancholy in the extreme. The place which, only a few short hours before, had been the scene of kindly intercourse and of social gaiety, was now entirely deserted, save by a few miserable wretches who were either stretched in irrecoverable intoxication on the floor, or prowling about, like beasts of prey, in search of plunder. The sofas, drawers, and other articles of furniture, the due arrangement of which had cost so much thought and pains, were now broken into a thousand pieces, and scattered in confusion around. Some of the geese and other poultry escaped from their confinement were cackling in the cuddy, while a solitary pig, wandering from its sty in the forecastle, was ranging at large in undisturbed possession of the Brussels carpet. It is highly to the credit of the officers, more especially to those who had deck cabins from which it would be easy to remove many portable articles, and even trunks and boxes, that they entirely devoted their time and energies to saving life. They left the ship simply with the clothes they stood in, and were the last to leave it, except, of course, where subordinate officers were detailed to look after portions of the troops. Captain Cobb, in his resolution to be the last to leave the ship, tried all he could to urge the few remaining persons on board to drop on the ropes and save themselves. But finding all his entreaties fruitless, and hearing the guns successively explode in the hold into which they had fallen, he, at length, after doing all in his power to save them, got himself into the boat by laying hold of the topping-lift, or rope that connects the driver-boom with the mizzen-top, thereby getting over the heads of the infatuated men who occupied the boom, unable to go either backward or forward, and ultimately dropping himself into the water. One of the boats persevered in keeping its station under the Kent's stern, until the flames were bursting out of the cabin windows. The larger part of the poor wretches left on board were saved. When the vessel exploded they sought shelter in the chains, where they stood till the masts fell overboard, to which they then clung for some hours. Ultimately they were rescued by Captain Bibby of the Caroline, a vessel bound from Egypt to Liverpool, who happened to see the explosion at a great distance, and instantly made all sail in the direction whence it proceeded, afterwards cruising about for some time to pick up any survivors. After the arrival of the last boat at the Cambria, the flames which had spread along the upper deck and poop ascended with the rapidity of lightning to the masts and rigging, forming one general conflagration that illumined the heavens to an immense distance, and was strongly reflected on several objects on board the brig. 
The flags of distress, hoisted in the morning, were seen for a considerable time waving amid the flames, until the masts to which they were suspended successively fell, like stately steeples, over the ship's side. At last, about half-past one o'clock in the morning, the devouring element having communicated to the magazine, the explosion was seen, and the blazing fragments of the once magnificent Kent were instantly hurled, like so many rockets, high into the air, leaving in the comparative darkness that succeeded the deathful scene of that disastrous day, floating before the mind like some feverish dream. The scene on board the brig beggared description. The captain, who bore the honored name of Cook, and his crew of eight, did all that was in their power to alleviate the miseries of the six hundred persons added to their number. While they carried sail, even to the extent of danger, in order to make nine or ten knots to the nearest port, the Cornish miners and Yorkshire smelters on board gave up their beds and clothes and stores to the passengers, and it was extremely fortunate that the brig was on her outward voyage, for had she been returning, she would not, in all probability, have had provisions enough to feed six hundred persons for a single day. But at the best their condition was miserable. In the cabin, intended for eight or ten, eighty were packed, many nearly in a nude condition, and many of the poor women not having space to lie down. The gale increased, but still they crowded all sail, even at the risk of carrying away the masts, and at length the welcome cry of, "'Land ahead!' was reported from mouth to mouth. They were off the silly lights, and speedily afterwards reached Falmouth, where the inhabitants vied with each other in providing clothing and food and money for all who needed them. The total loss from the Kent was eighty-one souls, namely fifty-four soldiers, one woman, twenty children, one seaman, and five boys of the crew. How much greater might it not have been, but for the imperturbable coolness, the commanding abilities, and the persevering and prompt action of Captain Cobb, and the admirable discipline and subordination of the troops. Another remarkable instance of the same thing is to be found in the case of the Birkenhead, where there were desperate odds against anyone surviving. The ship was a war steamer, conveying troops from St. Simon's Bay to Algoa Bay, Cape Colony, and had with crew a total complement of 638 souls on board. She struck on a reef, when steaming at the rate of eight and a half knots, and almost immediately became a total wreck. The rock penetrated her bottom just aft of the foremast, and the rush of water was so great that most of the men on the lower troop deck were drowned in their hammocks. The commanding officer, Major Seaton, called his subordinate officers about him and impressed upon them the necessity of preserving order and perfect discipline among the men, and of assisting the commander of the ship in everything possible. Sixty soldiers were immediately detailed for the pumps in three reliefs, sixty more to hold on the tackles of the paddle-box boats, and the remainder were brought on the poop, so as to ease the forepart of the ship, which was rolling heavily. The commander of the ship, 
ordered the horses to be pitched out of the first gangway, and the cutter to be got ready for the women and children who were safely put on board. Just after they were out of the ship, the entire bow broke off at the foremast, and the funnel went over the side, carrying away the starboard paddle-box and boat. The other paddle-box boat capsized when being lowered, and their largest boat, in the center of the ship, could not be got at, so encumbered was it. Five minutes later the vessel actually broke in two, literally realizing Falconer's lines. Ah, heaven, behold her crashing ribs divide, she loosens, parts, and spreads in ruin o'er the tide. She parted just abaft the engine-room, and the stern part immediately filled and went down. A few men jumped off just before she did so, but the greater number remained to the last, and so did every officer belonging to the troops. A number of the soldiers were crushed to death when the funnel fell, and few of those at the pumps could reach the deck before the vessel broke up. The survivors clung, some to the rigging of the mainmast, part of which was out of water, and others to floating pieces of wood. When the Birkenhead divided into two pieces, the commander of the ship called out, "'All those who can swim, jump overboard and make for the boats!' Two of the military officers earnestly besought their men not to do so, as in that case the boats with the women must be swamped, and to the honor of the soldiers only three made the attempt. The struggles of a part of them to reach the shore, the weary tramp through a country covered with thick thorny bushes before they could reach any farm or settlement, the sufferings of thirty or more poor fellows who were clinging in a state of utter exhaustion, cold, and wretchedness to the main topmast and topsail yard of the submerged vessel before they were rescued by a passing schooner, have often been told. The conduct of the troops was perfect, and it is questionable whether there is any other instance of such thorough discipline at a time of almost utter hopelessness. The loss of life was enormous only 192 out of 638 being saved. Had there been any panic or mutiny, not even that small remnant would have escaped. Turn we now to another and a sadder case, where the opposite qualities were most unhappily displayed, and the consequences of which were proportionately terrible. On the 17th of June, 1816, the Medusa, a fine French frigate, sailed from Aix with troops and colonists on board, destined for the west coast of Africa. Several settlements which had previously belonged to France, but which fell into the hands of the English during the war, were, on the Peace of 1815, restored to their original owners, and it was to take repossession that the French government dispatched the expedition, which consisted of two vessels, one of which was the Medusa. Besides infantry and artillery, officers and men, there was a governor with priests, schoolmasters, notaries, surgeons, apothecaries, mining and other engineers, naturalists, practical agriculturalists, bakers, workmen, and thirty-eight women, the whole expedition numbering three hundred sixty-five persons, exclusive of the ship's officers and company. Of these, the Medusa took two hundred forty, making with her crew and passengers a total of four hundred on board. 
After making Cape Blanco, the expedition had been ordered to steer due westward to sea for some sixty miles in order to clear a well-known sandbank, that of Argan. The captain, however, seems to have been an ill-advised, foolhardy man, and he took a southward course. The vessel shortened sail every two hours to sound, and every half-hour the lead was cast, without slackening sail. For some little time the soundings indicated deep water, but shortly after the course had been altered to south-southeast, the color of the water changed, seaweeds floated round the ship, and fish were caught from its sides, all indications of shallowing. But the captain heeded not these obvious signs, and the vessel suddenly grounded on a bank. The weather being moderate, there was no reason for alarm, and she would have been got off safely had the captain been even an average sailor. For the time the Medusa stuck fast on the sandbank, and as a large part of those on board were landsmen, consternation and disorder reigned supreme, and reproaches and curses were liberally bestowed on the captain. The crew was set to work with anchors and cables to endeavor to work the vessel off. During the day, the topmasts, yards, and booms were unshipped and thrown overboard, which lightened her, but were not sufficient to make her float. Meantime, a council was called, and the governor of the colonies exhibited the plan of a raft, which was considered large enough to carry two hundred persons, with all the necessary stores and provisions. It was to be towed by the boats, while their crews were to come to it at regular meal-times for their rations. The whole party was to land in a body on the sandy shore of the coast, known to be at no great distance, and proceed to the nearest settlements. All this was, theoretically speaking, most admirable, and had there been any leading spirit in command, the plan would have been, as was afterwards proved, quite practicable. The raft was immediately constructed, principally from the spars removed from the vessel, as before mentioned. Various efforts were made to get the Medusa off the sandbank, and at one time she swung entirely and turned her head to sea. She was, in fact, almost afloat, and a tow-line applied in the usual way would have taken her into deep water. But this familiar expedient was never even proposed, or even had she been lightened by throwing overboard a part of her stores temporarily, which could have been done without serious harm to many articles, she might have been saved. Half-measures were tried, and even these were not acted on with perseverance. During the next night there was a strong gale and heavy swell, and the Medusa heeled over with much violence. The keel broke in two, the rudder was unshipped, and, still holding to the stern-post by the chains, dashed against the vessel and beat a hole into the captain's cabin, through which the waves entered. It was at this time that the first indications of that unruly spirit, which afterwards produced so many horrors, appeared among the soldiers, who assembled tumultuously on deck, and could hardly be quieted. Next morning there were seven feet of water in the hold, and the pumps could not be worked, so that it was resolved to quit the vessel without delay. Some bags of biscuit were taken from the bread-room and some casks of wine got ready to put on the boats and raft. But there was an utter want of management, and several of the boats only received twenty-five pounds of biscuit and no wine, 
while the raft had a quantity of wine and no biscuit. To avoid confusion, a list had been made the evening before, assigning to each his place. No one paid the slightest attention to it, and no one of those in authority tried to enforce obedience to it. It was a case of sauve qui peut, with a vengeance, a disorderly and disgraceful scramble for the best places, and an utter and total disregard for the wants of others. End of chapter 5, part 1